So verse 21. This is God's holy word. As always, dear friends, take care how you hear it. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. And they laid it, so they laid it aside till the morning, as Moses commanded them. And it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. An omer is the tenth part of an ephah. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us this evening. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. Would you pray with me again, friends? Our fathers, we are looking to you for your mercy and for your grace. We pray that you would draw near to us, to all of us. We know that you know our need, and we pray that by your spirit you would comfort and heal and help. As we turn now to your word, and as we look to you, we ask that you would open our hearts and open our eyes. Help us to see and hear from you, and we ask that you would meet us in your grace, that you would grant us the Holy Spirit's ministry of illumination to this, your most holy word, as your people give ourselves over to the study of it tonight, for our good, for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen dissatisfaction. If there were ever a theme in the culture of life in the 21st century West, especially here in North America, I think that might be it. Dissatisfaction. A while ago, I was reading a news article highlighting this growing trend 
in Western society. Social media dysphoria, and then the accompanying social media dysphoria corrective surgery. No, I'm not making this up. I wish that I were. But this is a real phenomenon, a supposedly real disorder that at least some doctors out there are trying to treat. You've heard of gender dysphoria, for example, this supposed sensation that you're in the wrong body and you're unhappy with the body that you have, and if you're a man, you want to be a woman, and so forth, and so you have corrective surgery. Well, along those lines, people present a certain version of themselves on social media. They doctor up the image on their profile pictures. In other words, the version of themselves that they present on social media is often prettier, more handsome, more exciting, more professional than the real version of their life. And so there's their picture of themselves as they present to the watching world, and there's the life that they actually have, and they do some self-examination, and they feel a dysphoria, a disconnect. The life that I want is not the life that I have. The life that I wish to present is not the reality of who I am. And they seek out a plastic surgeon. And what they will do is show a picture of their Facebook image, and they will say, see this person here, doctor. See how youthful and blonde and pretty she is with these gorgeous blue eyes. Make me look like her. Now, whether you think that is patently absurd and laughable, or whether you think that's an actual medical or mental sickness, the point is the desire is rooted in a deep dissatisfaction in one's present circumstances. It is one symptom of a much wider epidemic in our culture, dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction is the theme or the underlying current in our culture, but it's also the theme and the underlying current in our text this evening in Exodus chapter 16. So we can see once again that this is no new problem. We 21st century Americans sometimes, even in the midst of our misery, think that we're quite special in how miserable and sinful we are. We're not. We're not. There is nothing new under the sun, and this certainly is nothing which catches our God by surprise or off guard, nor is it something with which he's not dealt before. Our God is more than equipped, and he's more than able, and he's more than willing, and he possesses the remedy for this perennial condition of the sinful human heart. Now, there's a lot going on in this chapter in Exodus 16, you may remember, so we decided to divide it in two. We looked at the first 21 verses a few Lord's Day evenings ago, and they really focus, those 21 verses focus on who God is, his character, his heart, and his dealings with his people. And here now in the second half of the chapter tonight, this is sort of God's game plan, if you like, his treatment, his enactment of his provision and correction to shape the hearts of his people. So first half, who he is in his splendor, in his ability, in his power, in his capacity to provide for the needs of his people. And here in the second half, his actual battle plan, his game plan, his strategy, his method for dealing with the needs of his people. Last time we noticed the grumbling and the entitled spirits of the Israelites and how they were on full display. And yet we also saw that God, who is rich in mercy, gave them manna from heaven in the mornings and quails to eat in the evenings so that everyone had enough, whether they gathered a lot or whether they gathered a little. God provided And last time we studied it under three headings, three GPs, a little alliteration there. A grumbling people, a God of patience, and a God of provision. That was last time. Well, tonight, as we come to the practical treatment program for dissatisfied hearts, in verses 21 to the end, we have three more points with another alliteration. 
Some of you I know love alliteration. Some of you groan every time the preacher makes an alliteration, but here we have it. This time it's with M and R. A matter of rest, we see that in verses 21 to 30. A matter of remembering, we see that in verses 31 to 36. And then thirdly, it's a matter of the Redeemer, and this really encompasses the whole of the passage. Rest, remembering, and the Redeemer. Three things by which to study or guide our study of the text tonight. So first, let's think about the first point there, that here is a matter of rest, verses 21 to 30. Remember how the Lord responded to the, to the grumbling, complaining Israelites. He showed them patience. He showed them immense kindness. Not only did he not punish them right where they stood, not only did he show them forbearance and leniency by not wiping them out and bringing down a hand of judgment upon them right where they stood, but more than not doing that, he positively cared for them. He provided for their needs. They were hungry. They griped and groaned and groused about it, so he gave them an abundance of food to eat, manna and quail. And in verses 16 to 19, he gave them instructions through Moses on how to gather the manna each day. They were to gather, remember, only what was needed for that day's necessity, daily bread. They were to gather only what was needed for that day's necessity. They weren't to keep extra for the next day. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us enough food, O Lord, just enough for today. Give us what we need for today, and we will trust you for tomorrow, even though we don't know what tomorrow holds. But the problem is, some, at least in Israel, didn't trust God, and they tried to store up extra, supposing that they might run out or there wouldn't be supply tomorrow, so they wanted to be prepared. After all, God has brought these plagues upon Egypt. After all, God has parted the Red Sea. After all, God has brought us through the Red Sea. After all, God has destroyed the Egyptian army in hot pursuit of us. After all, he's given us this pillar of cloud and fire. After all, he's promised he'd give us daily manna. But, you know, tomorrow he might not. He might let us down. So let's store up some extra just in case God doesn't come through tomorrow. And when they tried that, when they tried, verse 20, the manna turned bad. It bred worms and stank. They were supposed to depend day by day on each day's provision from God. Certainly this was the story that the Lord Jesus had in mind. This is the story he alluded to when he taught his disciples the Lord's Prayer. This was a reference in saying daily bread that his Jewish disciples would surely have picked up on. Now, the one exception to this pattern was the Sabbath day, verse 22. So normally, each day, Sunday through Thursday, they were to gather one omer of bread, just enough for the day. But on Friday, on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And Moses explained why. There will be no manna left on the ground. There will be no manna on Saturday, on the Old Covenant Sabbath day. And so they were to gather twice as much on Friday. God would provide twice as much, and they were to gather twice as much, and it would keep on this day. The double portion wouldn't stink or go bad. It would be available to them on the Sabbath day, on Saturday, if they gathered twice as much on Friday. You may remember last time we said that Exodus 16, in many ways, is a recapitulation of Exodus 15, That is, the same theme and the same lessons that need to be learned are played out yet again. And the lesson is, trust God to provide and to make good on his promises. 
Keep God's word. Obey my law, God says, because, or rather observe the pattern of life that I'm ordering for you because it has been instituted for your good and you'll see that I will meet your need. That's the principle. Trust and obey the Lord your God and it will go well for you. Or, in the words of our Lord Jesus, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And these things will be added to you also. That's the principle. We gather that well enough. We ascertain and apprehend that well enough. We comprehend it well enough. But here's the rub. Do we really believe it? Do we really believe that we must trust God and obey what he's commanded because it's actually for our good? One minister put it provocatively like this. He said, No one ever lost out because they kept the Sabbath holy. There's never been a time when I have put down my Bible or wrapped up some time in prayer or resisted or mortified a sin when I thought, what a loss. I could have been doing something else so much more profitable. No one ever lost out by keeping the Lord's commands, close quote. I wonder if we actually believe that. Do we actually believe that a cessation from worldly labor and giving ourselves over to a day of rest and worship, or what's sometimes called Sabbath work, works of necessity and deeds of care and mercy? We alluded to this in the prayer tonight. Some of our folks in our congregation are caregivers for loved ones, and they need to be doing that. It's a work of necessity and mercy, for example. And there's other examples we could give. But I do wonder, do we actually believe that a cessation from worldly labor and giving ourselves over to a day of rest is actually for our good? What's important for us to remember is that what Moses is doing here, what the Lord will soon codify in the Ten Commandments as we come to Exodus 20, with Moses. It's not a new or a novel practice. It's not a new or novel practice that the Lord is handing down from Sinai. Actually, he's reaffirming an old one. You'll remember that at the dawn of creation, in Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, the last day of creation work, where man was still in his, his functional infancy, and in innocence and perfection, still free from sin, God instituted the day of Sabbath rest on the last day of the week. Moreover, remember in Egypt, the Hebrews were the slaves of the Egyptian taskmasters who drove them hard and gave them no rest. There was no Sabbath. But here in the midst of this hard journey and this arduous pilgrimage, God gives his people rest. And now he tells them here to love and honor that principle. There's going to be enough. There's going to be enough Israel. There's going to be enough food. I'm going to give it to you. So that tomorrow you can rest and worship. Trust me. Obey my law. I will provide. Trust me. And this pattern of Sabbath rest, this keeping one whole day in seven as sacred to God, something instituted in Genesis 2, this is a pattern that is for us all. A pattern of rest and worship. A permanent part of the design of God for all people. It's sometimes called a creation ordinance. You know what the three creation ordinances are, if you've heard these referred to before. Right alongside work or labor and marriage, there's Sabbath. Work, marriage, and Sabbath. 
So that as long as there are people that live on planet earth, until the Lord Jesus returns to usher in the new heavens and the new earth, these creation ordinances keep on in perpetuity. Labor, marriage, and Sabbath. It is not a ceremonial and therefore obsolete and outmoded commandment. I love how our Westminster Confession of Faith puts it in chapter 21 like this. God has particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which in Scripture is called the Lord's Day, and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. Close quote. The day will come when the Lord Jesus returns and we are given final rest from the trouble and misery of sin. And we will be given final rest from the trials of living in a fallen world. When that rest finally comes and all things are made new at the last day. But until that day comes, we are to keep the Sabbath holy. It is a basic pattern and it is a component part of Christian devotion and discipleship that our Lord has built into our lives and into our weekly rhythms in order to provide us the relief that we need. And we'll talk more about that in a few weeks when we get to the Ten Commandments and we'll look more closely and more pointedly at the fourth commandment. But more than that, and more to the point of Exodus 16, the Sabbath is also designed to teach us to trust God to provide for us enough for our needs so that we can rest. That's really part of the big lesson of this section. We could, we could delve into matters of Sabbath-keeping and Sabbath-observance and how to rightly and how to rightly honor the Lord's day in our hearts and minds and attitudes and actions and schedules. Yes, and we can talk more about that, and there's a place for that, and I think that is part of the point of the text here, but really it's a subservient point to the broader point of do you believe God? Will he make good on his word? Do you trust him, or do you think that he's not going to pull through what he's promised to do? He said, take that Sabbath rest. I'm going to give you enough. Israel didn't believe him. Do we? Do we? One man puts it like this. The whole Sabbath point is here in this text to underscore the importance of obeying God in faith and keeping his law, particularly the Sabbath, and not excusing our disobedience on merely pragmatic grounds. The rest that God gave to Israel in our passage was not simply a rest from labor, but actually a rest on God, trusting his promise to provide for them in his grace. Close quote. Notice verses 27 and 28 for a moment. Apparently some of the Israelites decided that this Sabbath business was far too restrictive and they went out to gather on the Sabbath day, just as they'd done on the other days. Monday through Friday. Sunday through Friday. And this time, as they go out, they find nothing. It's possible even that these are the same folks from verse 20. It's possible the folks who tried to hoard their manna and store up extra and the whole thing begins to rot and breed maggots. This time, the day before the Sabbath, they are specifically told to store up extra so that they have leftovers that they're able to eat on the Sabbath on the next day. And yet again, rather than hoarding extra this time, this time they find a different way to break God's law. But behind it all is not mere flagrant disregard, but at the root of it all is a lack of trust that God will provide. They're dissatisfied. 
They simply do not think that God's way is the best way. And if we're honest, dear brothers and sisters, isn't that the thought that we entertain at times? God's law is unnecessary, it's unhelpful, it's overly restrictive. I think I could do it a better method myself. It seems like an unnecessary frustration. It's not the best way. Now, the idea of rest we like, but we want it on our terms. We're dissatisfied with God's pattern. We want something else. Now, so often, here's the dreadful thing, whether it's the Sabbath or whether it's any other command that our God gives, because this principle applies quite broadly. The thought lurking in the back of our mind is this. This thing that God has said is restricting my freedom and limiting my joy. I need to bring home work on Sunday or I need to center the day around me and my leisure because I don't trust God's ordering of things to provide for my best. I know God made me, but does he really know what's best for me? I I think that I might know in this area just a little better than he does. But God is saying to us here and everywhere in Holy Scripture, I'm the one you need. It's me. You think you need extra stuff or food or leisure for your rest, but it's me. You need me for the health of your heart and your body and your mind and your soul. Nothing else can give you what I can. And I've built into the rhythm of your life this day for fellowship with me and communion with me so that you might find the satisfaction that your heart desires. Now, the practice of rest, I suspect, is missing from the rhythm of many of our lives. You're saying, Sean, you're really going to go after this on the Sunday night crowd? We're here. (laughs) It's the Lord's Day evening. We're here. Yes, we are. Praise the Lord. But we know the culture that we live in. We know the pattern of our families. We know the attitude of our neighbors. We know the proclivities of our hearts, don't we? The practice of rest, I suspect, is missing from the rhythm of many of our lives. We go, 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 so many of us. That's the mentality of our world. That's the the attitude in the air we breathe, isn't it? Time is money. We can't waste either time nor money. We always crave more, don't we? Don't we? More money, more fun, more time, more luxury, more comfort. We pursue, pursue, pursue. This thing will satisfy me, and then I grab it, and I grasp hold of it, and suddenly I find I want something else. This thing that I've craved for months and has eluded me, now I finally have it. And it's not enough. We pursue satisfaction and it eludes us. And our text is saying to us, our God is saying to us, you know all of that is so unnecessary. God has set apart his day and he's asking you to trust him, to trust him for the rest and to keep his day holy. Trust him for the rest of the things you need. Seek first his kingdom and all these things will be added unto you. Trust him for the rest of the things you need. Keep his day holy. He will provide So let's trust him, brothers and sisters. Order our affairs around his day and not the other way around, squeezing his day of rest and worship in on the margins around our own pursuits. I say all this because I want us not to be browbeaten into our own lack of enthusiasm because of our lack of enthusiasm or browbeaten because of our lack of keeping it perfectly, but more so because I want us to realize what a gift he's given And what a delight it is and what a joy and treasure he's given to us. What a day he's given you, friends. A day of liberty. It's what it is. It's a day of liberty. 
where you are free to worship, you're free to sing, to pray, to read. You are free to not worry about the lawn or the cable bill. You're free to fellowship. You're free to visit that saint that you don't normally have time to see. You're free to read that devotional book that you never have time for otherwise. Ah, but if I don't do this thing on Sunday, I won't have time to get it in otherwise. Trust your Heavenly Father. I'm preaching to myself as much as to anyone else here tonight. Trust your Heavenly Father. Believe Him that He actually knows best and then see if He can't provide even for your schedule, beloved. I love how one pastor put it. He said this, God is no man's debtor. No one ever lost out by obeying God. Not one. Gather double on other days. Order your life so that you're free to keep the Lord's day. Honor God with your time. This is what it means when you say, Jesus is my Lord. It means he orders your days. Your times are in his hand. And you'll discover when you begin to trust him and obey that he really will provide. Close quote. Brothers and sisters, God will always give more grace than you need. We don't need to be miserly with his provision of grace. We don't need to be stingy with his provision of grace. Let us be those who keep his word and trust him and discover again and again that blessed contentment that comes with knowing that our Father orders all things well. All things well. So that's the first thing, a matter of rest. But then secondly, and more briefly, there's also a matter of memory that we see here in this text, a matter of memory. Verse 35 The people eat manna in the wilderness for a long time, all the way till they reach the promised land. Forty years of eating manna. Now, the point of the text there is not to make us groan and think, ugh, how monotonously dreadful eating that same food, that same meal for four decades. That's not the point of that verse. No, the point of that statement is for us and for Israel to realize, look how dependable, look how constant Look how faithful God is. God's provision for them does not and will not ever run out. His mercies are new and plenteous and they are ready to be dispersed every morning. Look how dependable he is. He fed them 40 years without fail. And in verses 31 to 34, Moses is essentially instructed, memorialize this fact, this truth, so that Israel never forgets it. So those verses, Moses was to take an omer of manna, it's about two quarts or so in a jar that would be preserved throughout Israel's generations in the presence of God. Scripture tells us later that Aaron would place it before the testimony, before the Ark of the Covenant within the tabernacle. And so it became a kind of permanent national memorial, a reminder for the life of Israel about the faithfulness of God. A permanent, this permanent omer, this symbol as it dwelt within the tabernacle, this symbol would say, never forget. Never forget how your God always, always, always provided for you. He never let you down. I have a a pastor friend who keeps a a rock on the corner of his desk in his study. Uh, there's, There's nothing special about that rock in particular. It's not like he got it from the Sea of Galilee or anything like that. But rather, he keeps that rock there to remind him of God's sovereign power to save and convert sinners, even the most hardened of sinners. Now, this man has quite a story. He was as hard a pagan as they come. He was far from God, 
He was hating God. He was mocking Christianity. This guy, spiritually speaking, was as dead as dead can be. He does not believe that sensational testimonies make the best testimonies, but he does know that his story is rather radical. And he keeps that stone on his desk to remind him of the truth that God takes hearts of stone and he grants hearts of flesh. And he keeps it there so that he will never forget what our God loves to do. And the point in our text is simple. God wants his people never to forget that he is sufficient for us. Bring that over into the New Testament. Think about the sacraments. We just had the Lord's Supper this morning. That's precisely the function they serve, baptism and the Lord's Supper. They're not optional. They're not sentimental extras. No, these are God-ordained and God-instituted means of grace designed to bring the word of God to us, to, to physically impress the gospel upon us with new power. Baptism and the Lord's Supper minister grace to us, the same grace as the Word of God that we receive with our ears. That's the sacraments bring that grace to bear in our hands and mouths and eyes. These are our perpetual reminders. Not an omer in a tabernacle, but rather these are our perpetual reminders with water and wine and bread. And it tells us what? Great is our God's faithfulness. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He is sufficient for us. Brothers and sisters, in the sacraments, we have a more powerful reminder than Israel did with that jar of manna because, in the words of one man, these are the emblems that you handle and taste, and they speak so clearly to us, the true bread of heaven, the greatest provision that God has ever given for his people's need, from which every other blessing of his grace flows to us, It speaks to us of the cross of Jesus Christ, his body broken, his blood shed, close quote. Which brings us very nicely to our last point. So a matter of rest, a matter of remembering, but then thirdly and finally, a matter of the Redeemer. When you read Exodus 16, and if you consult some of the commentaries, many of the commentaries will point, and I think rightly connect this passage to John chapter 6. Remember John 6? Jesus has multiplied the loaves and the fishes. He fed the people. And now they are enthusiastically following him. Look at this miracle Jesus did. Look how he fed us with all this good food. Yeah, I'll follow you, Lord. Jesus says to them, Truly I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the truest bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The crowds, they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Here's the point, brothers and sisters. Your soul, your heart, is made to find satisfaction in Jesus Christ. 
So many of our hearts have been dissatisfied, whether with the circumstances of life or any other variety of things. Our dissatisfaction runs rampant, and it is rooted ultimately in a dissatisfaction with God himself. And we have absurdly tried to glut our desires on every other option available to us. Food and drink and sex and money and work and relations and prestige and accolades and pride. We crave and crave and we keep on craving. It's never enough. All of these options in the end run hollow. None can fulfill what he who created us has ordained that only he could fulfill. Christ is the bread of heaven given for sinners that by faith in him they may never hunger again. Put quite simply, it's Jesus your heart needs. Do you know that? Boys and girls, do you know that? It's Jesus your heart needs. Come and cling to him. Trust in Christ. He will feed your soul. He will nourish your heart. He will slake your thirst. He will fill you, and his grace will never, ever, ever run out. Bless God for his word, and may he bless the ministry of his word to all of our hearts tonight. Praise him for it. Let's pray. Our Father, we come confessing that we are so, so prone to try and sate our spiritual appetites with the junk food of this world. And instead of being filled, we are left more hungry than ever. So help us now, please, to come to the true manna, the bread of heaven. And as we feast, as we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, fill us, nourish us, we pray, for our good and your glory. It's for Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen.